Shortly after the American North won the Civil War, construction on the East River Bridge was started. Tammany Hall and Graft controlled New York City and state. Ulysses S. Grant had recently been elected president, and the German immigrant and bridge designer who conceived the plan for the bridge had died before construction began. Work on the East River Bridge took 14 years, and up to 40 men died, mostly immigrants. The giant hollow wooden caissons, which allowed workers to dig out the bottom of the river, used pressurized air, resulting in debilitating caisson disease. The Brooklyn Bridge was opened in 1883 and quickly became an American icon, a towering figure reflecting a sense of pride and progress, a reality in part built on greed and death. I am Rebecca McCain, here with my co-host Alan Winson, and we are Bar Crawl Radio Podcast. Today, we are ensconced on the porch of Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street, across the street from the mortuary, and a brief subway ride to the Brooklyn Bridge. Sitting across from us are two experts, an academic and the other an architect, both involved with the Brooklyn Bridge. And with that bit of an introduction, here we go. Sarah Rosenblatt is an architectural conservationist. She received a Master of Science in Historic Preservation from Columbia University and is a member of the American Institute of Architects and is now working on the restoration of the Brooklyn Bridge. And with us today is Professor Richard Hall of John Jay College's Interdisciplinary Studies Department. He received his PhD in his hometown of Leeds, England, settled in New York in 2001. Richard has written several books on the Brooklyn Bridge, including The Brooklyn Bridge, A Cultural History, Art of the Brooklyn Bridge, A Visual History, and most recently, Engineering America, The Life and Times of John A. Roebling. Welcome, Sarah and Richard, to Bar Crawl Radio. Thank Alan, you. Yes. <laughs> Alan and I have been most excited to talk with you about your, our beloved bridge, sometimes maligned bridge. Never. Uh, the Brooklyn Bridge. Ask Henry James. So let's start with Sarah. Uh, what is an architectural conservationist? Sure. Um, so I studied architecture for my undergraduate degree and then about halfway through realized I liked old buildings more than new buildings and found my way to historic preservation. There's a number of different ways you can go with that field. You can get more into the legislative side. I found myself drawn to conservation, which for me melds um, sort of material science with architecture and history. So it's looking at why is this building, or why is this material degrading? How can we fix it? What's the best way to clean it? So there's a lot of material analysis and sort of some chemistry involved and how you clean things best. Um, so it's a very hands-on role, which is what I really enjoy. So, so what, what's the most difficult material to deal with in your career? Um, they all have their own difficulties. Yeah. <laughs> I think at, at this point I'm pretty experienced with masonry and feel pretty comfortable with that. Um, I don't have as much experience with like plaster or interior finishes. Are there still masons? Oh yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. some very I, skilled I remember, masons. I yeah. I had heard when they were rebuilding the the St. John of the Divine, which I guess it's not finished yet. No. And they it'll never find, be finished. <laughs> they couldn't find an, um, people skilled in the, the masonry. It's art often a matter of if you can afford them because uh, they're out there, okay. but they're very skilled. Mm, yeah. Very good. Very yeah. good. So why did you get interested in old buildings? What attracts you to old um, buildings? I don't just um, the history, the nostalgia of it. I just I, I don't know. Learning more about the past, I find compelling. Um, and, and what drew you to the Brooklyn Bridge, or how did you get started? And I'm also interested what other buildings you have been working on. Sure. My first building that I worked on in the city was St. Patrick's Cathedral. Oh, which wow. Which was my first job out of grad school. I felt incredibly fortunate. I said, I'm never going to work on a building as famous as this. And now, of course, here I am on the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> um, what kind of work did you do at St. Pat's? A similar restoration, interior and exterior. We cleaned the stone, repointed it. We repaired the plaster on the interior. It was also a full mechanical upgrade, we installed a geothermal system, new HVAC, new lighting, kind of so to, to top to bottom. And this would keep help to preserve the stone? Yes, yeah, it hadn't been restored future. in about 50 years. 
And how you do know, you clean the stone? Uh, St. Pat's, we cleaned with um, a sort of water and microabrasive system. It sort of gently scrubs the surface of the stone. And this is on the outside of the building? We did outside and inside. Right. Yeah. Um, now, I know St. Pat's is not the focus of this yes. uh, podcast. <laughs> I but could I'm, talk about it forever. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, did you kind of, what was the most interesting place you saw in St. Pat's that none of us would ever see? The signatures in the stained glass. There are three different main stained glass artists, and some of them have these tiny signatures. They're a quarter inch high, and you're never going to see them unless you're up close, and it was such a treat to get to see that. Wow. Yeah, wow. that's cool. That's fantastic. Yeah. So the Brooklyn Bridge, yes, quite old. It's it's in its 140th year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, what is being repaired now? So it's the towers, and then what we call the arch blocks, which are the structures as the ground slopes down and the roadway slopes up. There's all these structures underneath that are arches. You can see them from the from the ground, and then inside there are these soaring vaulted brick spaces. So you've been in there. What w- yes. what is in there? So we were talking Nothing. about <laughs> the side of the bridge as we approach it from the Manhattan side. Mm-hmm. On the, on the Brooklyn side, I don't think they have them, do they? They do, yeah. All right. Yeah, they're smaller. They're not as and many. And there's arches, and it's mm-hmm. like the side of the bridge before you actually get over the water. Yes. Um, and what's in there? Yeah. Right, right now, nothing. At some point in the past, they've been event spaces. On the Manhattan side, there were shops on the ground level. Um, one was used as a wine cellar at one point because it's a nice, you know, cool temperature year sure. round. And, and when the bridge opened, it was used how? I think for shops. For shops? Mostly, it was, yeah. It was designed for shops. Wow. Uh, Cool. And, and now it's nothing. It's just now empty. It's, now it's nothing. I think post 9-11, they moved. They didn't want the public underneath such a major you know, roadway and yeah, they used landmark. To be, they used to be, sorry to interrupt, oh, but please. they used to be Art Under the Anchorages, uh, run by Creative Time, which was an event space. Mm-hmm. They would have bands there. They'd have art shows there. Um, and that was a really flourishing, interesting time in the late 90s, early 2000s. And... Um, and after 9-11, uh, the commissioner of bridges or the commissioner of something closed the whole thing down and everything was moved out and it's been empty ever since. Yeah. But it was a flourishing art space for a long, for quite some time. And there's such beautiful spaces and people keep asking me, you know, the masons that we're working with, they say, okay, we're restoring these spaces. What are they going to be used for? And I said, I have no idea. Probably nothing for a while. And they're cavernous. They're yes, huge. they're huge. Yeah, yeah. Some of them are 40, 50 feet tall. Holy oh, moly. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're beautiful. Wow. So, so what is your job specifically? What do you do? So I'm contracted through the city, who is the client, the DOT, technically, um, and we are inspecting the work that the contractor does. So we're working with them to identify the scope. Okay, you need to do a crack repair here. You need to do this type of stain cleaning here and working with them to make sure we agree on the scope and ensure that it's done properly. And the contractor knows how to do all yes. that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. don't have to tell them? No, no, they're, they're a restoration contractor. They do a lot of this type of work, Pullman. And how much has to be done? How many cracks are there in this 140-year-old <laughs> structure? Not, not a ton, thankfully. It's mostly cleaning and repointing, replacing the mortar. And we're talking yeah. about the towers? The towers and the arch block structures on the ground. All right. Yeah. Okay. Work work is pretty much wrapped up at the towers now, so we're mostly down on the ground. And the towers look pretty good? The towers look great. Everybody thinks it's a brown bridge, but it's not. <laughs> wow. It's like a lighter gray. Some of the stones have a little bit of pink in them. It's yeah, really I was beautiful. Say pink. Yeah. 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 And what did you do to prepare for this job? Did you study the original Roebling plans for the bridge? I or? didn't. I kind of just got thrown into the deep end. Construction was already well underway when I started. But, you know, the design team did a lot of research into the history of it. Right. I, I had um, heard that uh, you, you went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Rensselaer, Institute? Rensselaer, yes. Yeah. Right. Is there a Roebling arc, uh, um, there is. archive there? Yeah, and we used them, ex- oh, not I, but the team used them extensively. Wow. During the di- and did you phase. get to see those any of those uh, building plans? I haven't. Other people did. You have? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have, yeah. Um, the, the entire Roebling archive is uh, when um, it was donated. All the family materials went to uh, Rutgers Library, the Alexander Library in New Brunswick, uh, and all the engineering material went to Rensselaer uh, Archives. So there is a humongous amount uh, of material about not just the Brooklyn Bridge, but all the engineering drawings, all the notebooks um, that John Roebling used for all his bridges, um, plans for unbuilt bridges, just hundreds of different drawings, beautiful. Um, Most of the actual um, drawings for the building of the Brooklyn Bridge are at the National Archive, the the Municipal Archives down uh, near City Hall. uh, And they have all the sort of, the drawings that we used um, uh, when the bridge was built. And these are large drawings. I mean, they go up table after table. They are are huge. I actually, 
they just renovated a number of the drawings, the big large-scale drawings of the municipal archives, and I was invited to go see them. And they're like 40 feet long, some of them. Wow. So they're, they're renovating the drawings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and sort amazing. of... Well, they were, the, the drawings were found in the 70s. I don't know the full story. Uh, David McCullough talks about finding them yes. in the closet. Well, he didn't find them, but he sort of was involved in looking at them. But they were, yeah, they were found in, I think, the anchorage of the Williamsburg Bridge or something like that, and they'd been just stored there for people who wanted to renovate the bridge. The, the, in terms of how, like, the, the bridge has been majorly renovated several times, but it's constant upkeep from almost the day it was opened with things breaking and things like that. Um, and it's been sort of substantially remodeled over the years. The, the, the walkway is different, the, all the, the railings are different, the approaches are different. There used to be stairs going up to the towers now that's just a, a straight thing. All sorts of things and um, major sort of uh, changes with, there used to be cable cars, there used to be different things on the bridge. They've all been changed over the years. And those drawings were used as successive renovations were done. Those drawings were sort of referred to every once in a while. They were just kept in basically like a shed underneath the Williamsburg Bridge where people in the Department of Transportation, I think, or Department of Buildings knew where they were. Um, but then they just sat there for ages and nobody really consulted them and then they were discovered and renovated or rest restored. And I think they were put on, I think they were put on exhibit in 1983 when it was the 100 year anniversary and treated as works of art, which they are. They're really beautiful. I wonder if there's ever been a movement to restore the bridge to its original look? That would be impossible. Impossible. <laughs> um, well, you, you, uh, unless you wanted to make it purely a footbridge, um, because the, the big girders, Sarah would know more than me about this, but the big girders put aside were made to strengthen the bridge so you could have cars, and it wasn't built for cars. Did you visit any part of the bridge that the rest of us can't get to? Some yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've, I've been on the this. tops of the towers oh, my God. many, many times. Oh, my God. Um, there there also are these cavity spaces inside the towers. So there's the pointed arches and then a flat wall and then the, the tops of the towers. And there's actually a space inside of there that I've gotten to go into once. And I've, I felt like Indiana Jones going down into this tiny little tight space with your flashlight oh yeah yeah headlamps on my hard hat and everything oh, wow. yeah yeah right and this is in the towers inside the tower above the arches yeah above the arches yeah so not quite at the road level oh ab above the road level above the road so level. if you look at the main viewpoint that people think of of the tower there's the two arches and then there's the top. There's a little bit of space in between there. Right. I'm making hand motions as if people can see them. But yeah, <laughs> no, we can see it. It's all right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there, there was scaffolding to get up to the tops of the towers, and then that came down. But there was a tiny bit of work left, so we've actually gotten to walk the cables a number of times oh to get God, to the top, Sarah. which is such a thrill. You weren't afraid? <laughs> I love heights. <laughs> so it's so, been a great so, job for me. So walking, yeah, I, no, I, I could not do it. So do they, do they like... You're fully harnessed in, so you're walking on a 12-inch diameter cable. 12 inches, one foot wide. Right, so you're, you're kind of foot. walking one foot in front of the other, and right. then there are two small cables, probably about an inch diameter at handrail height, and I have a full-body harness, and I'm always clipped in on both sides. And you just oh walk I your mean, way just, up, clip, clip, clip. Just thinking about it is giving me like vertigo. I know, vertigo. I know I'm, I'm the same way. I have a quick question. Do you have special boots? Like extra tready boots or no, like I mean, my, my glue regular, on them or something? My regular construction boots have a pretty good tread. Okay. And it's painted with like a gritty paint, so you mm -hmm. have... All right, I'm, I'm getting dizzy just thinking about this. <laughs> so mean, as you're walking up, do breathe. you look down and... I have, yeah. Oh my God, Sarah, you're in the right job. <laughs> right. It's really fun watching people down on the promenade notice us up on the cables. And some people wave or take photos. One guy looked at me, shuddered and looked down. He couldn't... That's me. <laughs> yeah. That was me. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that was me. Aren't you worried about like change falling out of your pocket? Oh, everything on you is tethered. <laughs> Even my keys are clipped in. My phone has a lanyard. Nothing is loose. Is it windy? Um, not not terribly. And I mean, if it's really bad weather, we wouldn't go up. Yeah. Did right. you feel swaying? Not really. No, not no. too much. It feels yeah. pretty solid. Then. It feels pretty solid. Yeah. Ah. yeah. Wow. Wow. And when you get to the top, you're on the top of the towers. Mm -hmm. um, first, what is up there? <laughs> Just railings. I mean, it's just a flat surface. There's a couple of railings that we used to tether ourselves to. Wow. And you tether, so you take it off and you tether yourselves into the railing. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, do you see where the big cables are like attached to the top of the tower? Yeah, so there, those are also, the cables go through, it's called a saddle. It kind of goes up and over. And those are also these little interior spaces that you can go into. Wow. So I've stood on the very top of the cable inside right. the tower. 
And what kind of view do you get of Manhattan and Brooklyn up there? Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I bet. <laughs> I always liked going up the Brooklyn Tower because then you can see the Manhattan Tower and the Manhattan skyline. So you did both? Oh, yeah, yeah. And you took pictures? Oh, I took pictures that I'm not allowed to share, unfortunately. Why? Uh, DOT rules. <laughs> what? I know. That doesn't make sense. I suspect that was the same reason they shut down the art in the Anchorage. I, I think it's things. a they're very terrorism nervous threat. About, oh, I, yeah. see, I yeah. see, I see. Maybe they're nervous about people actually being attracted to go up there. Maybe. Well, well, all of the above, I guess. They put, um, since, uh, that used to be a problem, um, uh, people going up there, but they put those big those fences. Those suicide gates. Yeah, yeah. up yeah. there now, which it, it would be very difficult to get up there without yes. the key. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, there's big gates there. All right, yeah. right, okay. right, right. Wow. All right, so back to so, the restoration. Sure. <laughs> Um, are you able to replace damaged areas with materials that, that are like those that were used in the 1870s? Yep, yeah, yeah. We've sourced, um, there's a couple different types of granite that are used, and we've sourced replacements for all of them. Um, the brick on the interior, we have a replica brick that is a pretty pretty good match visually, and the, um, all the material properties, composite strength, and all of that we pay attention to. But not necessarily from the same quarry. No, not, not always. Sometimes the quarries are shut down, or you know, it's more difficult to get them. I mean, that was a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a common problem in restoration is not being able to get the exact same stone. So you look at you know what's going to be a good match visually and materially. How, can I? I've got a question. Like, how do you match granite? Like, what, I mean, I just I don't know enough about the sort of geology. Is that even the right yeah, yeah, word? Geology. Yeah, um, there's. Um, I mean, it's a whole field. Actually, one of my classmates from undergrad. That's her whole world. She works in a lab that does materials analysis. Mm -hmm. And there's all different types of tests that you can do to analyze the stone and find a good match. Wow. Yeah. And it needs to look good, right, too. It needs to look right, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. So what's the granite there? What is it? What, what is it? There's a couple different ones. There's um, Mount Waldo is one. Vinyl Haven is another. I don't remember all the names. They I should can, know they this. They came from Maine, I think, didn't they? Yeah, Yeah, a lot of them are from yeah. Maine. Right. Huh. Well, most interesting. And the bridge is quite old, as we've already mentioned, um, used in the 21st centuries in ways that I'm sure the original um, planners and builders didn't anticipate. So how safe is this 140-year-old bridge? Oh, it's still very safe. <laughs> yeah, I think when people hear we're restoring it, they sort of wonder, oh, God, what's wrong with it? And nothing. It's just, you know, routine maintenance. All buildings should be checked periodically just to, for basic upkeep, really. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, okay, we've, we've walked up, up to the towers. <laughs> I fell off a long time ago, so thank you, Sarah, so much for sharing sure, that with you. I pleasure. wanted to turn now to Professor Richard Hall of John Jay College's Interdisciplinary Studies, yeah. a former resident of Leeds and an ardent follower of Leeds United. Yes. But we won't go there. No, we lost yesterday. Oh. oh Again. Oh, okay. Um, how did you get interested in the Brooklyn Bridge, sir? Um, well, um, the short answer to this is I, I took a very circuitous route to university. And so I'm not really trained in any sort of discipline. And I always thought that studying things from one angle was a bit boring. Um, so I, I, I think that the world is really interesting if you look at it from lots of different angles. So I did a sort of American studies undergraduate degree, which I did because not because I knew anything about America or, or was that terribly interested in America, but it seemed the only interdisciplinary program I could find or get into, whatever. Um, but, um, and I became, I first came to New York in the early 90s and I thought it was really fascinating. I thought compared to England, it was really diverse. Um, the city was just a very different from European cities. Um, I, I really sort of fell in love with New York and um, so I, I knew I wanted to stay at college. I, I didn't go to college until I was in my mid-twenties. And when I got there, I thought, God, this is incredible. Um, I'm going to see, see if I can stay as long as I can. And so when I finished my undergraduate, I did an MA. And when I did, in England, you, you, a PhD, you have to start with a proposal. So I'm going to do this. And so I thought, what the hell am I going to do? And I, and I thought, well, I, I'll, I'll find something interesting that I can study from lots of different angles. Uh, that had a sort of interesting history, interesting personalities involved with it, um, that had been influential uh, in lots of different ways, uh, that had influenced a place in lots of different ways. And I just thought, why not do the Brooklyn Bridge? I mean, I, and I remember, I think everyone has probably had the experience of, if you weren't born in New York, coming to New York and ticking off all the tourist things you're supposed to do, and the Brooklyn Bridge is really a magnificent structure. It's a, it's a really beautiful thing. It's very arresting to walk down the central walkway. It feels just so different from anything else in the city. And I just thought, well, if I'm going to spend um, 
four years, three years looking at some, the impact of something. Why not, why not this? It's beautiful to be here. And I thought that it, it, it seemed like a really significant thing, one way or another. I mean, I, didn't, I don't think I could have said much more than that at the time, but it seemed significant, so I thought, well, I'll do this, and I can look at it from... Uh, I knew that the um, art of the Brooklyn painting, people, lots of people have painted the Brooklyn Bridge, lots of people have photographed the Brooklyn Bridge. It had been a sort of inspiration for urban planners and preservationists, and it, it, it had sort of inspired all sorts of poetry. It inspired uh, sort of... I mean, it's sort of really the first sort of branching out of a mass transit system in New York. There were just loads of different ways in which it was, it seemed significant. So I thought, well, I'll do that. And I thought, I'll just see what the impact of the Brooklyn Bridge has been on American culture and society. So, um, and so that's the sort of long-winded answer of why I got into it. Um, I think, and I think it's, I think it's, it's, I think it's really a significant thing. And, it is, and it, I think, I suppose the last thing I would say about that is that it's really been important. It was really important. It meant something when it was built and it symbolized things, lots of things, really. And, it, and that has always changed over the years. So um, I think it's not just like the Statue of Liberty, you think of immigration or anti-immigration, but, yeah, that's, um, but the Brooklyn Bridge has changed in, its sort of, in what it means to people and what it means to the city and how people have understood it has changed over the years. So it's also dynamic in its sort of symbolism or its iconography, whatever word you want to call about it. And it seems, it just seems like a really interesting thing. Why build a bridge over the East River linking these two separate cities at the time, mm -hmm. Brooklyn and New York and Manhattan were different cities, mm -hmm. um, right after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. The Civil War had just ended. Um, planning on this started about, what, 1870 or so, maybe a little earlier? A little, uh, well, if, um, the first instance of someone thinking that you should build a bridge is 1800. Okay, um, right. And there's a huge history of plans to get over the East River one way. There's lots of ideas to tunnel under the East River right. in the 19th century. Um, Which might have been easier. Um, yeah, uh, none of them were terribly realistic until John Rubin comes along. Um, and some even proposed laying a tube on the, on the, on the, on the base, on the, on the ground of the river and going across. Um, New York was a rising city. Um, I mean, and it, uh, the trouble is that it's sort of expanding um, it's sort of filling up. It is sort of through much of the 19th century. It's primarily um, Manhattan, but um, Brooklyn in 1830 is a village. Um, at the end of the 19th century, it's the fourth largest city in the United States. Um, it needs to expand, um, and the trouble with that sort of conundrum is that you need to connect Manhattan with all the things around it. Um, it's all very well and good being this mighty city if it's just a tiny little island, effectively, you need to move things around. Um, but the, the source of New York's might, financial might, was shipping, trade. And so uh, there's lots of, people want to connect Brooklyn and New York through most of the 19th century, but there is significant opposition in the shipping industry. They didn't want any piers in the river that they thought would block um, shipping. Um, and so there's a huge amount of political and financial power against Thing. And there's, there's, there isn't the technology to build a single span arch of any description, be it suspension bridge or anything else, across the East River. It's just too long, um, and so it's it's been it, it's, it's talked about all the way through the 19th century. And John Roebling writes about it. Um, he begins thinking about it. He he designs, in a very rudimentary sense, a bridge across Blackwell's Island, uh, where the Queensbridge Bridge is now in the 1840s, I think. Um, he writes a couple of proposals and writes a couple of articles about bridging the East River in the 1850s. Um, he works on bridging the Ohio River uh, in the 18, starts in the 1840s and ends in the 1860s. That's where he got his initial experience. Um, well, he, he, he built, his first bridges are in Pittsburgh in the 1840s. Mm -hmm. um, suspension aqueducts and a retrofit for the Monongahala Bridge. Right. Um, Taking a water aqueduct and putting it over a river. I know, which he does. He actually does five times in his life, which is a really useful way. I mean, so, many, so much of these questions that are sort of interesting about the 19th century, bridges are part of this sort of internal improvements, transportation revolution, where you have this continent with this huge potential, but you've got to move things around. 
Um, and so for a long time, canals are winning, but then railroads come along and they became obsolete. But getting canals over large bodies of water is a huge question in the 1840s. It's much less of a question in the 1860s, but in the 1840s, because that's how you move things around. Um, and especially when you're trying to get things to the Ohio or the Mississippi River to get them down um, to the ports in, in New Orleans and things like that. Um, so um, this question is, 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 is on everyone's lips in New York through much of the 19th century. It's just a question of whether the technology exists to do it, especially without encumbering uh, river traffic in the East River. And John Roebling is really the central figure of 19th century suspension bridges. I would just sort of add that before John Roebling comes along, mainly they fall down. And after That's he comes along, mainly they stand up. Suspension bridges were not, I mean, people were concerned, is this thing going to be possible? Can we actually build a bridge? Because they had fallen down prior to that. But Roebling knew something that the other <laughs> bridge makers didn't. As is always the case with geniuses, have. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, he, he, had a, he had an excellent track record. The only person that was similar to him in, in sort of influence was Charles Ellett, who built the first um, sort of modern suspension bridge of any sort of scale um, in Philadelphia in the 1840s. Um, he then built, he, he ultimately got the contract over Roebling to build uh, the Wheeling Suspension Bridge, which is still there, actually, the, or certainly the towers are still there, but it fell down in a gale. And so, um, and none of Roebling's bridges fell down. Um, and he, he over-designed his bridges um, by a huge factor. He was, he was um, terrified of failure. What does that mean, over-designed? Um, Just making it stronger than it needs to be. Like, if yeah. it needs to hold 10 people, you design it so it can hold 100 people, and mm. then it'll never yeah. fall. Uh, and that's, that's been a, that was a feature of all of his bridges. It, I mean, I think perhaps most prominently on the Ni Niagara International Suspension Bridge. He was, it was the first and really the only functional railroad suspension bridge in the, in the, in the world, which he built between 1851 and 1855. Um, and if you ever see photos of it, um, it's over the Niagara Gorge, like, and there's trains going over it. If that fails, it's... it's, it's gorgeous. Um, it's, uh, so he built extra, um, built to be much, much stronger than it needed to be. But then also, after the Wheeling Bridge failed, he put all these sort of stays in underneath it. He sort of um, was terrified of, of failure. And I think, I think a more generous reading is he also understood that the world was changing. So in terms of, say, um, railroads, the initial rail, railroads in the 1850s, um, the trains were quite heavy but not super heavy. By the end of the 20th century, they, they are very, very heavy indeed. And so I think he understood that these, these bridges being built would need to accommodate heavier and heavier transportation systems. Is part of this uh, overbuilding uh, reflected in that harp quality of the, um, of the steel lines? Because you don't Absolutely. see that in other bridges. No, well, I, I, he, th this is, a, again, a sort of one of the issues. Sarah would, again, probably know more, more about this than I would. But the, the trouble with the suspension bridge is you want the flexibility, but you also need stiffness um, or else once resonance starts, it's very hard to stop. As with everything, Roebling threw every idea he had at it and hoped it would be stiff, and, th and it has been stiff. Um, and the, the cable system is really the sort of unique Roebling aesthetic with bridges, and it's created all this wonderful poetry. And I, I mean, to me, still, one of the, the great things about walking over the bridge is walking towards the towers and being slowly encased by this web of steel, which is just a, an incredible feeling it's something it's about it. it's so beautiful um, but it's there to add strength and stiffness as much as any sort of aesthetic choices um, and I mean the, the fact that the Brooklyn Bridge is still actually carrying traffic is remarkable there's very few suspension bridges really around uh, that haven't been changed the, the Ohio Bridge is still there but the, they've added extra suspension cables to that bridge and fully remodeled and not the Brooklyn but, Bridge, no extra cables. No. They haven't had to. Right. You are listening to Bar Crawl Radio Podcast, recording at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. We are talking with Sarah Rosenblatt, an architect working on the reconstruction of the Brooklyn Bridge, and historian Richard Hall. When we return, we will delve into Professor Hall's 2005 book, the Brooklyn Bridge, A Cultural History, 
which considers the mystique of this American icon. I was curious to hear what others felt about Roebling's masterpiece, and so on Martin Luther King Day 2023, I took a walk across the Brooklyn Bridge and asked. Tell me your first name and where you're from. Jace from New York City. Oh, you're from around here. Oh, you're no good. Yeah. yeah. Why, why are you here on the bridge? Uh, day off and just wanted to get out and walk. All right. Do, do you come out to the bridge often? First time, actually. Really? How long have you been in the city? Like six or seven months now, so still pretty new. Where are you from? Austin, Texas. Okay. Uh, first name, Abraham. I'm from Florida. And why are you out here? I'm um, just enjoying the view, enjoying uh the time that I have off today and just uh, uh, spending some time with friends. Why are you crossing the Brooklyn Bridge and not the man, another bridge? Uh, the Brooklyn Bridge is known to be historical, so I just like to, you know, share some time with my friends here, take some pictures, and this is actually my first time in here, so. Great. Okay, I'm Justin, I'm from uh, the west of the UK. Oh, that's great. We just did a podcast with an historian from Leeds. Okay, yeah, Leeds, well, my, my daughter is at university in Leeds, so I know Leeds well, yeah. Excellent. Why are you here? I'm here to see the beautiful views. You know, it's a beautiful day here in New York City, and, um, you know, can't think of anywhere better to be, really. What is your impressions of the Brooklyn Bridge? Well, it's so epic, you know, epic, and uh, it's nice to see it so well used by people as well, you know, that it's really something that draw, draws people, you know. But uh, no, it's unbelievable. It's l like nothing else in the world, really. There's a young lady hanging on the edge here. I wonder if you could tell me why you're there. I'll stay away from you. Why Why are you uh, visiting the Brooklyn Bridge? Because it's so beautiful. The views and all of New York. I'm. My name is Felicitas. I am from Argentina. Anything like this in Argentina? Um, no. Okay. Well, be careful. Yeah. Have a nice visit. Oh, uh, we are from Argentina, all, and we are Do you here. Know the young down there? Yeah, yeah, we are all, all a group. Okay. We came here for uh, English, English course, and we are You're doing very well. Yeah, thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you. And why are you visiting the Brooklyn Bridge? Uh, well, we had a, like uh, an excursion today. We are going. We came from that side, and we are going. To Chinatown now. What, what do you think about the Brooklyn Bridge? Beautiful, amazing, amazing. It's amazing, like the movies. Like a movie. Like it's been in a lot of movies. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I like the architecture. Uh, I really lo love it, and I think it's it's huge. Um, amazing. Sierra from Texas. Texas. We're in Texas. Dallas. Uh, we just kind of planned out a trip. This is our first trip together, and we've been together for seven years. So we decided to do it big. Congratulations, but why pick the Brooklyn Bridge to spend your, your morning? Um, I think it's beautiful and I feel like everybody should visit it and walk across it. I think it's kind of cool to say I walked across the Brooklyn Bridge. Ludovic, I'm from France. From France? We're in France. Lyon. Lyon. Yeah, since last uh, four years, we come here and we take a picture. Oh, so you've been here four times already? Yeah. What do you think about the bridge? It's a monument. It's okay. a special. We are friends, and we know the the history. Right. So it's a it's a it's a special uh, special monument. Uh, I'm Amrita, and I'm from India. From India. Yeah. Excellent. Where in India? Uh, Hyderabad, down south. Right. Yeah. And why are you here on the Brooklyn Bridge? Uh, I just came here with friends who are traveling. So it wasn't your choice to be here. It is a kind of a choice because I just got here, but I've never like come to the Brooklyn Bridge. This is my first time here. Great. And now you're in the middle of the Brooklyn Bridge. What do you think of it? I think it's beautiful. It's something that I can't explain. Yeah. yeah. What, what is it you find beautiful about it? I think, I think just being here in the, on, on the top of water in the middle of the bridge is just overwhelming. Do you tell me your first name or where you're from? I'm Brad. I live in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. Okay. If you're around here. Yeah. Uh, so you've been here before? Oh, many times. I come here all the time. And why? I like the, the sun, I like the vibe. You're in New York, but you're not in New York. You're not on the land. You're, you're, it's a little surreal. Okay. Thank you, Brad.
I'd like to talk about a different aspect of the bridge, which is talked about a lot, um, and I, I think it's fascinating, is at the base of the bridge's enormous granite towers, uh, from which the cables would hang that we're talking about, uh, was constructed using a pneumatic caisson technique, which had been used before. Can you explain this technique in a way that we can understand it? And, and, I and, 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 I, and I feel like I have a rudimentary understanding of how it and works. And it's dangerous, too. I'm, yeah. I'm a cultural historian, so maybe the, I'm not the best person to ask. But, um, I mean, a caisson, is, this is, it's, it's a huge part of none of John Rubin's bridges before. He'd had to dig very, down very far to set his towers. You've got to set the towers on something solid or else they won't stay up. Um, and the thing that's solid is the, is the granite bedrock, bedrock below yeah. the river. Yeah. Um, on the Ohio River, they had to dig down about 12 feet to reach bedrock. The Brooklyn Tower had to go down 45 feet into the riverbed to reach bedrock. The Manhattan one, which is where the huge problems were, had to go down about 80 or 90 feet and still didn't get to bedrock. So a caisson is basically an, a huge upside-down like diving bell. And so it's, it's, it was a huge, like, 100 by 180-foot um, wooden box um, that was um, about 30 feet... It was about feet, half a block. Yeah, it was about, and it's about 30 feet tall, but about 21 of those feet is solid wood. And so inside, it's about 9 feet tall. And so you would... Um, you took this large wooden box and sunk it to the bottom of the river. And then you would start to build the towers on top of this. So as you dug down, the towers would rise over the top. But then you, you pumped compressed air into the thing to expel all the, to keep, make it workable, to expel all the water. Uh, you had a sort of pulley system and a, a sort of elevator system to get in and out. And uh, workers inside would dig down and there would be a big grabbing arm that would pull up large boulders and everything. Um, and you would slowly dig down at sharp edges around the outside, um, and you would slowly dig down. This is sharp edges of the edge of the caisson. Yeah, this big box. to help, help it sort of... And then it would sink. And it would sink. You would dig down, and the, the towers would be built on top, and until you reach bedrock, which... Um, and then when they reach bedrock, you'd fill it all with cement, and it would stay there. Um, work inside the caissons was hellish and crazy. Um, it's really, really hot. Um, it's really, really claustrophobic. It's very, very small. Because you um, have about nine foot of uh, headroom. Yeah. Um, tons of workers in there. Um, it's moving uh, earth. Working in compressed air. You, you. How you got rid of the boulders was you exploded them. And in so, that. Yeah. In a highly oxygenated atmosphere, and so the chances for explosions and fire and were tremendous, which happened a couple of times. But also, if you think about this system, you've got... Um, we have a lot of hand of gestures here. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm, it's, it's, it's a very okay. visual thing. It's but okay. you have this box, and if it sort of uh, moves from side to side and you let water in, it can sort of topple as well. So um, a couple of times it happened that uh, an explosion started a fire in the caisson, which is made of wood. Um, but then once the, the, the wood gets ignited, where does fire go? goes up so it goes up into the ceiling of the caisson about, on which you have about 75,000 tons of granite um, and, and you don't know if it's been put out um, so what you do is you, you then have to um, flood the caissons and hope that the flooding finds its way into the, into the, into the caisson and puts out the water the, the, the most salient fact about the caissons is that the further you go down the further you have a chance of contracting decompression sickness or the bends once you get down to about 70 feet down, the bends becomes a real problem. And they didn't know what it was. They treated it with whiskey. They rubbed coffee into limbs. That was always the first cure, whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, any, sure. any illness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, people feel better after they've drunk some whiskey. Absolutely. I mean, um, I'm fixed. <laughs> um, and um, when we got to about in sort of 70 feet, 75 feet down, workers started dropping like flies. Nitrogen changes from uh, a liquid to a gas at certain points and it, and it comes into your bloodstream and ends into your joints and it's very very painful yeah. that's why it's called a bends because you sort of keel oh, over because right, yeah. right, right. Um, okay. it's so painful men would be bent over yeah and right. vomiting and ill so how um, did they resolve this they didn't well how did they resolve it um 
So they got down to about 76, 77 feet down into the, into the riverbed. And people wouldn't work down there. And anyone who went down there got sick because they didn't know how to deal with it. Um, they didn't know how to ameliorate the problem. Um, and Washington Rubling, who was John Rubling's son, who was the chief engineer, was a very good geologist. And so he did lots of tests. And uh, he had been struck by the Benz a couple of times as well. Um, and he, he thought or decided, calculated, that the, the sand hadn't moved for like 9,000 years or 90 million years or something. I don't know how it was. So he thought that the sand would actually be okay. So he made the gamble to stop digging and to cement um, things. So that, I, I think it's the New York tower rests on sand, not on bedrock. Wow. So it stayed up. It stayed up. Yeah, it's so, cal- so good. Good yeah. calculation. <laughs> From reading David McCullough's The Great Bridge, mm-hmm. beautiful book, uh, that those who built enormous structures over water, I got the sense, are not really ordinary human beings. Uh, I, I, I mean, just have the idea that I can do this. You know, you, you've, you've got to be some, some kind, of, uh, kind of, think of yourself as some kind of a god. What is your sense of John Roebling, the designer of the bridge, of Washington Roebling and his wife, Emily? who needs to be brought into this story, who managed its construction after um, the Washington. Be, be, where John had died before construction yeah. began. Washington had got sick with this Benz, Benz disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Emily had a pill. So I'm from the both of you, what is your impression of these people? John Roebling was um, a complete weirdo. Um, and I love him very much, actually. A weirdo. Uh, yeah, well, he was, I mean, they're all, if I'm being... I've written so much about this that it's a sort of it's a sort of and by the potentially way, uh, quite problematic question to ask me because I could spend the next like, three hours talking. Richard's most recent book is Engineering America: The Life and Times of John A. Roebling. Um, John Roebling was a really interesting, very almost representative of the 19th century. The 19th century is a time of new things, new a time of exploration, physical exploration. Uh, intellectual exploration, uh, physical exploration, um, and John Roebling was a really good example of that. He believed in a lot of things, and and the world tried to believe in a lot of things. A good example is seances. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, John Roebling was really into the spirit world uh, and believed in it very strongly. And it's very easy to think of him as sort of a weirdo in that regard, but so did a lot of people. Tons of people believed in weird dietary things. Tons of people believed in the water cure, like slowly running water over your body would cure cancers. Loads of people believed that you could find, that you could communicate with the dead. Um, it's a world in which possibility seems cap- seemed capable of finding new things. So he believed in um, possibility and he believed in fixing things. Um, he grew up in Germany, or well, the German-speaking world, there was no Germany when he was Thing, uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, and sort of, I, I think he sort of really couldn't abide the chaos of that time, and everything he wanted, he, he, his diaries and notebooks and everything just fill of, filled with ideas to fix things, to fix steamboats, to fix uh, all sorts of systems, um, diet. Um, he did he did a lot of sort of experimenting on himself with diet and wrapping himself in a wet sheet every night before it was part of the water cure. Um, and every morning you wake up saying, need, I need more wet sheet. Um, <laughs> which, My wet uh, sheet has dried up. Uh, yeah, well, he used, to, he used to wrap himself in a wet sheet. There was a joke between me and a friend of mine when I was writing my book that I should call the book More Wet Sheet, The Life and Times of John A. Roebling. There you go. Um, so he was, but he was an ideas man. He was a fixer. He wanted to bring order to the world. Um, and he, I think he saw bridges, and he, he wrote a lot about the transatlantic cable, and he wrote a lot about railroads. He thought that if you brought people together, it would create brotherhood, uh, and, it would, and it, would, it would create bonds between people. Um, and so he believed that technology could create a more equal society, and that society would become more equal. Um, so he's sort today. of. Uh, <laughs> I wonder what he would think of us today. <laughs> well, well, he was he was also an optimist. I think he yeah. would probably say we're on. We, we're, he was certain that we were all heading in the same direction. He thought it was a, a, a difficult process, but he also he believed in in a god of sorts, and that the god would um, sort of get us there. 
Washington Roebling was a lot more of a practical sort of person. That's John's son. Yeah, uh, his eldest son. And and poor old Washington lived in John's shadow, not only during John's life, but after it. Um, His archive, he has loads of letters from people in the archive to say, oh, um, I love your dad's bridge. Uh, when his dad had died and he'd built the damn thing. Um, and I think he had to sort of answer to that his entire life. And he was um, physically harmed, um, made it incapacitated during the building of the bridge. Um, and I think he, he lived, I think his, his happiest time was during the Civil War when he could get out from under his father's influence. And he was a military man. Yeah. Uh, well, he served, he, I don't know the degree to which you would call him a military man. He served in the Civil War as many people did. He could have afforded a substitute, which a lot of other rich people did, but he didn't. He served. I, I suspect he wanted to get out from his dad's shadow and do something on his own. Um, he saw a little bit of action, not a huge amount of action. He built bridges for the uh, Union Army and then served as a sort of aide-de-camp to Governor, Governor Warren. Um, but I think he was able to be his own man for a while. Uh, and then he came back and he worked on his father's bridge in Ohio and then took over when his dad thing. In terms of the building of the bridge, in that regard, Washington, uh, you say like you must feel a bit godlike to do this. Washington had been trained his entire life to do this. Um, and I think he felt a real obligation to complete his father's work. So, and Emily, um, I, I, it's, Emily is the question you always get asked about the Brooklyn Bridge. Emily did not build the Brooklyn Bridge, neither did she play a substantial part in the engineering of the Brooklyn Bridge. She played a huge part in the political maneuvering uh, of the Brooklyn Bridge, and she was a, a major player in the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, but there is this myth has got out there that she somehow took over the engineering of the bridge and brought it to its conclusion. Um, and that's where you say, like, you must feel like a god to be able to do this sort of thing. It, but at one point, the politicians wanted to fire Washington. Exactly, and, and the bridge was a better bridge because he completed it a much better bridge than he completed, and he was only able to complete it because of Emily, who was able to go out and talk to people. She was a, she was a real political mover, uh, and she was able to sort of secure backing for her husband and ward people off and charm other people. Um, she was a, she's a significant player in this story. She just, it to me, without any disrespect to Emily, it's somewhat laughable to think that you could just, without any education or training at all, pick up building the largest suspension bridge in the entire world and one of the greatest engineering feats of the 19th century and just get it and be able to make decisions about how the bridge is brought. She was the communicator. She was a communicator and a a great, a really wily politician and a very good communicator, but probably not in any regard an engineer. So Sarah, you have been working on the Roebling Bridge. Is there any insights you have about its designer or the builders? The, the designers, I don't, I, I feel more connected to the materiality of it and the, the specific detailing of it. The people I don't feel as connected to in the way that Richard just spoke about. Um, what, what I love is being up close to the, I want to call it a building, to the structure and just seeing all of these little details that people probably don't notice from the ground, but it's very elegant. Um, so what kind of, of details? Um, the way the way the stones interlock as you go up the coursing and as the way the profiles change, the way the way the intersections happen between stones. I, I'm such a nerd. I, <laughs> I'm constantly taking pictures of like, oh, this mortar joint is done a little bit differently than the course below it, and that's just so interesting. There are these great drawings that I'm sure you've seen, Richard, of the plan of each level of stone, and they're all numbered, and they're each... You know, it changes a little bit from course to course. Sometimes the stones go lengthwise, sometimes they're turned in to key in. And it's it's incredible to think of the amount of planning and design that went into that. You know, today you just do it all with computers and beep bop boop, the computer does it for you. But to have to think through those details. One of the things that's so beautiful about that also is that it's not just that someone had that thought. Someone sat there and labored and drew. These, yes. dra- these drawings are beautiful and all hand-drawn and shaded and everything. They just look at them and... The, the skill to think it through, the skill to enact, to draw it, to put set it out on paper. I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of really impressive people working on that structure. Richard, in your studies, you've looked at the cultural impact of the Brooklyn Bridge as reflecting, in a sense, the idea of America. As you said before, that kind of got you interested in, in this topic. America's painters, photographers, writers, poets 
have used the bridge as an image to say something about this nation, about people. Um, for instance, comparing the bridge to M.L. Lazarus's poem about the Statue of Liberty, the bridge is seen as a welcoming in some places, a welcoming place for immigrants. Does the Brooklyn Bridge reflect an America of hope and progress? Ne things are never that simple, I suppose, what you would, you would have to say. Um, I think that um, one way that you can look about the Brooklyn Bridge is a sort of sense of its place in the city's history. And so when the bridge is uh, opened, there's a lot of nervousness about it, but it sort of ultimately settles in um, over the years to a sort of sense of dynamism. The bridge is, when it's built, the bridge is the tallest thing in North America. It's the first uh, structure to use steel in its cables. Um, it is a hugely important icon for modernists, painters, um, photographers, um, writers, as symbolizing this rising new dynamic New York. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's actually a very interesting image of um, the Brooklyn Bridge in Harper's uh, Weekly or Harper's Monthly, I think it's Harper's Weekly, in the late 19th century that has the bridge and right behind it this massive city of rising skyscrapers. The Brooklyn Bridge seems to be the sort of the er uh, moment of this new modern skyscraper city, this huge city of scale where it's raging up. And, and so it sort of, it seems to bespeak the city to come this new powerful city of the 20th century. New York is an incredible, incredibly important city in the 19th century for all these sort of reasons. Of course, Henry James saw this and he couldn't stand it. Uh, he hated the Brooklyn Bridge, this modern image. He was eating away at the city. He knew, he loved tradition. Let, let, me, let me read a little quote from his yeah. essay, The Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, he writes in this essay, quote, in studying the air-conditioned quality of the American nightmare, I'm enchanted by the prospect of rearranging the debris which is accumulated he then goes on to list mundane objects that define America, and he ends uh, this little piece with, quote, in the dead center of the debris, thoroughly renovated and thoroughly ventilated, stands the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm. I think that's actually Henry Miller that said that. Well, that's Henry Miller, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, so he was another one who wasn't a particularly... Uh, no, no. Well, I mean, pe people react to it as if... if a, if the Brooklyn Bridge is a symbol of America, if you don't like America, you're not going to like the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, it's the same with any symbol. Hen Henry uh, James, uh, I'm trying to think of the quote, called it a colossal set of uh, mechanical jaws opening and closing, eating up the old city that, uh, that he was born into, um, and sort of destroying the past. Um, which is in interesting, I think, because I think now when we look at the Brooklyn Bridge, because it looks so much older, it doesn't look dynamic, it's, it's been sort of overtopped by so many of the structures, it looks, I think it's, it's now a symbol of sort of fond nostalgia. I think we think about it as embodying an older city, um, a sort of historical city, um, the sort of city we don't really have anymore. The Brooklyn Bridge and, and many of those older structures like Grand Central Terminal, remind people of how we used to build in a more interesting yeah, it's manner. Yeah, not about efficiency, it's yeah. about the experience. Yeah. yeah. So Sarah, how about you? Can we ask you the same question? How do you see the Brooklyn Bridge and this idea, this relation, this idea of America? I really love, I've actually a couple of times since working on this project walked the Manhattan Bridge and it's such an interesting viewpoint of the Brooklyn Bridge to be able to see it in its entirety from riverbank to riverbank um, and to think about as Richard said when it was built it was the tallest thing and it's wild to look at it now and it's dwarfed by downtown Manhattan um, and it's, I, I love that viewpoint as an opportunity to think about how much it changed the city. To think that at the time people were taking ferries back and forth and if it was too snowy or icy you couldn't and just to think about how much it changed the city and the impact it had. Um, and of course now it is one of the most recognizable icons in the city, in the country, I think you could say. It's so recognizable. Um, it's really, I, I feel so privileged to be working on it. The Manhattan Bridge is quite a good contrast because of course you build two, de two decks on the Manhattan Bridge. The Brooklyn Bridge, you share, you, you save one for, past, for, for people walking. Giving pedestrians that central spot on the bridge is something we don't do. We, we, we don't even build, like the Verrazano built in the 1960s, there's no pedestrian walkway at all. Yeah, and I, I walk back and forth across the bridge a lot for work because we're working on both sides and there's always so many tourists. So, you know, my coworkers and I sort of laugh at the people taking 
the exact same photo in the exact same pose at the exact same spot and we sort of laugh about it but you know it just speaks to how iconic it is yeah i mean they're taking those photos for a reason yeah absolutely yeah i, I was here yeah. yeah there's a picture i'm not even sure which magazine was in but it's a very dark picture it was at you know a bit after september 11th 2001 in which the brooklyn bridge is in the foreground and the towers burning towers are in the background do yeah you, do you know what picture that is uh there's there's a lot like there's a lot of pictures like that i've there's a there was a, a very famous picture of i don't know lucky photographer i guess but i think it was actually a, someone who worked for magnum so it wasn't just an amateur photographer of the um the the twin towers exploding with the bridge in the foreground and they got the exploding Right. The, the and the people the were background. escaping the area, running across the Brooklyn yeah. Bridge. Wow. So Sarah, in the 1950s, the Brooklyn Bridge was modernized to handle the traffic at a different time. Um, bridge engineer David Steinman created a new Brooklyn Bridge. In your work, restoring the bridge, do you consider both Roebling's original design and the changes that Steinman made? I'm actually not sure I know exactly which changes were what Steinman made. Do you know? Yeah, he, he um, redesigned... The, the most obvious is he put those box girders on the outside. Uh, other, uh, the, the roadway was open, effectively. Oh, okay. But to accommodate uh, heavier traffic, um, Steinman put box girders. They closed the bridge for a couple of years, and that was the most obvious thing he did. People, um, old-timers, complained that the extra weight um, flattened the graceful curve of the bridge. So a lot of people were com complained about it. And um, if you see pictures of the bridge when it was opened, all the railings were quite ornate, and now they're sort yes. of a very utilitarian. Um, and so the bridge was thought to have sort of undergone a sort of utilitarian facelift. It, Little it, it worked 50s. better. <laughs> it worked better, but it looked it, it worked better, but it looked worse. Yeah, I, I think you, you pointed out, Richard, that in your book that the Brooklyn Bridge is no longer really Roebling Bridge anymore. It's uh, it's a different sort of design. I mean, with the, with the roadbed where the cars are, it's kind of, they're kind of ensconced mm -hmm. inside of this place. Um, uh, that it's 19th century grandeur, what you called its sublimeness, mm -hmm. was kind of lost. Can you talk about that? I think I think the sublimity is there. It's it has less immediate effect. When when the bridge was opened, it was huge. It just had such a startling impact on people, and that sense that. Uh, the, sub the sublime is both this sort of sense of awe and beauty, but with a little bit of fear. Uh, I think you see that very markedly on the Memorial Day panic where someone shouts the bridge falling down and everyone believed them and they try to rush off the bridge and there's a panic and a crush. Um, I don't think we think that about the Brooklyn Bridge anymore, despite the fact that we've, we always wondered how safe anything that old is. And, and because there has been some really high-profile infrastructure failures in the last 20 years or so in this country. And specifically bridges. Yeah. I think that those sort of failures can be... Um, uh, small failures can seem profound. So in, in, I think, the early 1980s, one of the cables snapped um, and hit someone and... On the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, it did not go well. But it, it, it was one thing failing, had a tremendously dramatic effect made, and made everyone think, oh, shit, the bridge is falling down, the bridge is right, on its it was, last legs. It was built with so many redundancies yes. that it's exactly. not. Exactly. <laughs> so, but one thing like that makes people think. Um, but I think, I think that when the bridge was opened, there was this sense of sublimity, this huge, slightly terrifying thing. But that, again, sort of morphed into a nostalgia as, the, as, as history has progressed now, where we think of it as sort of an old friend rather than a terrifying new portent of things to come. Right, t talking about that, that, that old friend quality, I, I have walked across um, the George Washington Bridge many times and across the Brooklyn Bridge many times. The experience is quite different. When I walk across the Brooklyn Bridge, I can actually grab one of those cables mm -hmm. and I could shake it. And I yeah. could see it shaking all the way up. <laughs> There's like a personal kind of like... Yeah, you feel connected. I yes. feel connected to it. Yeah. The George Washington Bridge, it's cold. I mean, you get a great view. You're hugely high up there. What is that experience of walking the Brooklyn Bridge? I, I love the shifting perspective of the two skylines, both Brooklyn and Lower Manhattan. 
I love how it changes as you move across. And I think Richard was saying earlier, your perspective of the, the cables change. When you're in the middle of the bridge, it's this low thing sort of scooping up to the towers. And the closer you get to the towers, you get completely enveloped by it. You know, people, there's these all these iconic shots that people take. And when you're in the middle, it's this web surrounding you on mm-hmm. all sides. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, let me, I'm going to um, ask Richard the same question, but kind of add this thing to it. Um, is it possible that the George Washington Bridge has taken over the mystique of what the Brooklyn Bridge used to have, that now it represents America, it's more, it's more modern, it is more like America than the Brooklyn Bridge has passed its time? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, may, maybe. I mean, um, some critics have said that. Le Corbusier um, said that when he came to New York in the 1930s, um, uh, the George Washington Bridge gleams like a young athlete. Um, I think he said. Um, I, I think that, I think that that the George Washington Bridge is probably a more apt symbol of what America is more now, even though it was built in the 1930s. Um, I think that the Brooklyn Bridge symbolizes what America was and could have been in all sorts of ways. Um, I, I, you know, honestly, I think that that you know, I think that things like the Twin Towers symbolize much more. They're sort of very utilitarian. They're built to make money, to have sort of square footage maximized out. I, I don't think they're built with a lot of civic grandeur in, in mind. I don't think the Brooklyn Bridge um, symbolizes what America is these days. I, I think it symbolizes, I, th- I think it's more of an inspiration. It symbolizes what it could be, what it was and could be again. Although I'm also aware that it's it's one of the sort of fallacies of thinking about the world is, oh, if we if we just go back to back then. Um, back to the good old days. Yeah, back to the good old days, which is complete BS. Um, so I, I think that there are much better symbols of what America was in the 1970s, what it is now, uh, than the Brooklyn Bridge. I will say, um, I think I, the key to the Brooklyn Bridge, though, is still the walkway puts, puts the pedestrian at the center of the bridge. Um, and, it, and it puts, and it, and it sort of, it, it prioritizes the walk of the pedestrian. The human experience. And the, yeah, yeah, and the scale of that. Um, and it's, 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 it's an incredibly visual appeal. Um, and it's so different from the other bridges. It's so different from the other bridges in New York City that you can walk across where the pedestrian experience feels more like an afterthought. Like, oh yeah, we should let people walk across too. Certainly the George Washington yeah. Bridge is like that. Right, right. right. But the Brooklyn Bridge, you're, you're in the middle, you have these great views and you're elevated above And that the was roadway. maintained, yeah, yeah. That was in, yeah. by that elevation. Mm-hmm. And as a driver driving across the bridge, you feel like, you know, you're like, you usurper, like you're not, yeah. you shouldn't, you're just sneaking across. Yeah. Well, and with all the box girders, you you can't really see the no, towers very well. You're boxed in there, and you just got to get across. And oh, driving it's for a very different yeah, experience. It's, it's not it's, a good. It's a human driving. bridge. Yeah, yes, it is. Exactly. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think I think the first way I, I, I would I think one thing uh, I would love to have done is to, to know what it was like to go across before the before the bridge was altered, when the outside was yeah. was all open. That must have been a real joy, I think. Um, but I think I think one of the things I think something I, I sort of think about with John Roebling a lot and the bridge is how there is it's not just that when you're working your sort of the visual sense of it, but there's something about how everything draws your attention upwards. I mean I think I think it's it's worth talking about John Roebling was a somewhat effective designer for most of his life, but with the Brooklyn Bridge he nailed it. Uh, and so the cables lead your eye upwards. The buttresses lead your eyes upwards. The gothic things are literally big arrows pointing upwards. You are looking. Everything Everything works in concert to bring your eye upwards, to, well, that's, to look that's up. That's part of the point of gothic architecture, too, is to lead your eyes upwards towards God. Yes. I mean, that's we talked about that a lot during St. Patrick's Cathedral Restoration, is it's all about you know bringing you up towards the heavens. That's part of the gothic. So this was strategy. a perfect job for you to take on. It really was. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the bridge that, that wants to be a church. Absolutely. There you go, Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. a church to what? Mm. Well, okay. <laughs> Church of infrastructure. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, technology. maybe. Yeah, for it at its time. Yeah. So yeah. the Brooklyn Bridge is now 140 years in service. How much longer will it span the East River? Do you think? I hope for a long time. I mean, this is something I 
try not to think about too much as a preservationist is, you know, I, I, I want everything I work on, I want the city to last forever. Will this city be here in a thousand years, in a million years? No. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm preserving these things to last, but you know, and climate change is a huge part of discussion in the historic preservation industry. How are we fortifying our built environment for the coming centuries? How much are our cities going to change tremendously? I think the Brooklyn Bridge isn't going anywhere anytime soon, of course. <laughs> That's too beloved and too monumental. But I, I do think about, yeah, what, what will it be? What will its impact be in 100 years, 200 years? What will it look like? We have been speaking with Sarah Rosenblatt, an architectural conservator, restoring the Brooklyn Bridge, and historian Richard Hall. Thank you both for joining us on Bar Crawl Radio to talk about our beloved and reviled Brooklyn Bridge. Long may she live. I am Rebecca McCain with my co-host Alan Winson. We welcome your emails and ideas you may have about future conversations at a neighborhood bar with interesting people doing important work. The music for this podcast is called The Battle of Manassas, written by Blind Tom Wiggins and performed by pianist Carl Patrick Belay for the Composer Concordance's Three Keys concert at Bensington Hall in Manhattan in 2020.